very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks, Ian Roberts and Declan Byrne discuss recent events. Frank Hicks and Adele Carr are joined by Professor Luke McNamara of the University of New South Wales Faculty of Law to discuss public spaces, policing and the social and political dimensions of rules and regulations. And Ian Roberts talks about his 10-day endurance ride for charity along the eastern seaboard. Hello and welcome to Greenway Chambers Law Talking Podcast. My name's Frank Hicks and I'm joined today by Ian Roberts and Declan Byrne. G'day Ian, how are you? I'm well, thanks Frank. How are you going? Very good, thank you. And you Declan? Loving the isolation. How about you? I'm just about had enough of isolation, but in any event, um, we're here today to talk about three recent decisions which caught our eye here at Greenway Chambers. The first, unsurprisingly, caught our eye because Ian and Declan were in it and they won. And the other two uh, was a decision, firstly, of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, which considered the Home Building Act and what residential building work means. And the other was a decision of Justice Campbell, which looked at the old Section 52 of the Trade Practices Act or the Australian Consumer Law, which I'm slowly getting used to instinctively refer to it as. But firstly, TFM Epping and Decon. And tell us a little bit about this case. Yeah, sure. This was a claim for the recovery of debt under the New South Wales Security of Payment Act. Uh, it came before Justice Henry, and a number of defences were sort of erased. Um, Justice Henry de- dealt with all of those and found in favour of the contractor. The uh, matter went on appeal to the Court of Appeal, but the grounds of the appeal bore very little resemblance to the issues that were argued before Her Honour. Um, the case really gives us three, I think there are three, no, sorry, four things we can take from the from the case, uh, three substantive things in one matter of procedure. The first thing that um, I think we get from it is that the court was uh, keen to um, discourage, I think, people from making applications for summary judgment rather than having the matter listed for a final hearing. That, that avoids a number of issues that notoriously arise under summary judgment applications particularly the issue about whether there needs to be a trial or an arguable defence rather than simply um, determining matters, the issues on the pleadings. The other issue that it avoids is the need for leave on an appeal if it goes that far, which it did in in our case. So I think there's a a fair bit in Justice Baston's judgment that would be enough to discourage parties from running a summary judgment application rather than simply having the matter prepared and, and set down for a final hearing, which you can do pretty quickly and probably no, would take no, no, no more time than having it uh, determined on a summary basis. So there's the scope of the uh, hearing on a final basis as opposed to a summary judgment is probably, in virtually all circumstances, going to be about the same, but you do avoid those questions of tribal issues or the pitfalls of needing leave um, for any appeal by pursuing it uh, on a final basis rather than on a summary basis. Yeah, and Justice Henry uh, said that expressly in her judgment and the Court of Appeal recorded that as well. Uh, There's no need for a summary judgment application. The issues are the same. You may as well have it finally determined. Well, um, thanks. So that's the procedural uh, matter that was addressed by the Court of Appeal and certainly uh, is good for practitioners in this area to bear in mind. Um, 
Declan, what else did you see procedurally perhaps that emerged from this case? Well, the, the other big procedural issue is the one that Ian alluded to earlier. I mean, I think by the time uh, the case got to appeal, Ian, you wouldn't have recognised the grounds that were uh, raised? No, apart from the names. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously front and centre was this issue of whether um, new issues were entitled to be raised on appeal. Now, there was no dispute between the parties that it, the question came down to the interests of justice and, the, and it was really about how that operated in the context of the Security Payment Act. The uh, Justice Emmett, in around paragraph 96 of the judgment, uh, discusses that interaction and, and specifically finds that uh, the object of the act set out in Section 3 does not contemplate a, a second round of argument, um, the second bite of the cherry, as the, uh, the applicants here were trying to do. So I think that's going to be an important issue going forward. So... What is justice for the purposes of the interests of justice on a question of introducing new grounds is informed by the objects of the Act. Indeed. Thank you. Now, substantively, what did we learn out of this case or perhaps what was resolved, Ian? Well, there are probably two substantive issues that come out of it and one um, we can um, dovetail from uh, what Declan just said. There was an issue raised that hadn't been raised before Justice Henry as to whether or not the claim, the payment claim was invalid or its service was invalid because it was said it didn't have a valid uh, supporting statement accompanying it. Um, so the court had to resolve two uh, divergence of views that had emerged over the course of a number of decisions. They fall into two groups. There's a, a group of cases that follow the view expressed by Justice McDougall in Kitchen Exchange, and then with, the, with that case were two decisions of Justice Ma in Kyle Bay and then Duffy Kennedy. And then the other group uh, was a, well, not the other group, but the other case that uh, had a different view was Justice Ball's decision in Central Projects. Justice McDougall had said the absence of a payment claim that had a supporting statement with it, invalidates the service of the claim. Justice Ball in Central Project says, no, I disagree. It doesn't invalidate the claim. But his honour didn't have to deal with that issue because he found on another basis and said that, um, thankfully, he didn't have to resolve the issue. That issue then went back to Justice McDougall in Greenwood Futures. And his Justice McDougall, having had the benefit of Justice Ball's um, view, said the reasons for Justice Ball disagreeing with his earlier decision were powerful. So we have this divergence of views. The Court of Appeal resolved that in favour of Justice Ball's view expressed in central projects. So it's clear now that a payment claim that does not have with it when it's served a valid supporting statement or even has a supporting statement that has a knowingly false statement in it does not invalidate the claim or the service of the claim but gives rise to its own penalties that are provided for expressly in the sections 13, subsection 7 and 8. So one less basis for <laughs> challenge to any payment claim. They seem to be coming fewer and fewer as the cases go on. Um, what was uh, perhaps another aspect of the substantive law that was addressed, Declan? I think the other big point to come out of this was in response to an argument by TFM that the inclusion in a payment claim of any work performed after a reference date invalidated uh, that payment claim or meant that you couldn't rely on that reference date. Now, uh, the court came back with a fairly authoritative statement in relation to that argument. Um, uh, Justice Baston said, quote, that proposition is patently untenable 
unquote. So it's a fairly um, forceful rejection of what some assumed uh, just to be the case, notwithstanding the case law hadn't tested it for the last little while. The absurdity of the argument, I think, could be could be tested in, in this case in particular because the it was conceded that the only work that could be or the only component of the payment claim that was possibly carried out after the reference date was two or three days' worth of interest um, on what was otherwise a multi-million dollar payment claim. Well, that certainly seems to be fall in the category of patently untenable. It does. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you very much for that, um, Ian and Declan. I'm sure you enjoyed your outing in the Court of Appeal and enjoyed reading the uh, reasons even more. Now, um, in the Court of Appeal also recently handed down a decision of Lawrence and Cantor, uh, Declan. You've had a bit of a look at this case. Can you tell yes. us what it tells us about residential building work um, for the purposes of the Home Building Act? Funnily enough, this was another appeal from... Uh, her Honour Justice Henry's decision like BFM. There's some comments um, by the Court of Appeal in this case on the about the interpretation of contract. But Frank, as you said, the main issue is the, the interpretation of the definition of residential building work under the Home Building Act and specifically looking at whether work, uh, preliminary work uh, relating to a subdivision fell within that definition. And did it? Um, it found in this instance it didn't, and it narrowed. Uh, the, it was a narrower interpretation than the Court of Appeal had taken in the case of. I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. Grigel and Bain from 2005. I think it's a soft G, so Grigel and Bain. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, we, I think we all, we can all read that decision. Now the case that caught my eye was uh, one of Canon Finance and Reliance Medical Practice. It was a decision of Justice Campbell didn't really probably break any new ground in terms of uh, uh, matters considered, uh, but it certainly provides uh, all practitioners with a good summary of the authorities and principles associated with the old Trade Practices Act Section 52 claim or Section 18 under the Australian Consumer Law, as it has um, been known now for nearly 10 years. And I'd just like to refer practitioners to, starting at paragraph 223, Justice Campbell provides a good summation of the law associated with concepts such as trade and commerce, conduct, conduct in context, what is necessary to be proven by way of oral representations to enable the court to uh, make a conclusion as to misleading and deceptive conduct, the fact that uh, one is not dealing with a reasonable person test when it comes to misleading and deceptive conduct and that each claimant needs to be taken uh, as themselves, but also the fact that Section 18 is not designed for the benefit of persons who fail in the circumstances to take reasonable care of their own interests. That's been a principle since uh, 1987 and the decision in Elders Trustee and E.G. Reeves. Um, further, Justice Campbell looks at the questions of causation, reliance and the question of legal norms, starting at paragraph 278 and finishing at paragraph 274. So just a neat and short little refresher of the relevant authorities, principles and concepts that are so often dealt with in this area. Well, that's all we have to look at for the moment. Ian, I'd like to thank you for joining us and sharing uh, the fruits of your victory with us. My pleasure. <laughs> I'm sure it is. And Declan, I'm sure you enjoyed uh, the, the same exercise and the same eating. I did. Thanks, all right. Well, thank you very much and uh, keep listening to Greenway Chambers Law Talking. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? 
Today, we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Professor McNamara, a co-director of the Centre for Crime, Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales Law School. And he joins us today to discuss the criminalisation of everyday behaviours and the impact on public spaces. Now, in these times of lockdown, because of the COVID-19, most public spaces have been severely restricted in terms of the activities the public are allowed to engage in. Professor McNamara, what are your observations of those laws and how they've been enforced? Well, it's interesting because when we embarked on this book, and this is a collaborative project with Associate Professor Julia Quilt at the University of Wollongong, when we embarked on this project, uh, we did so off the back of a number of years of research uh, on how criminal laws and policing practices impact on how different groups and individuals can use and enjoy public places. We, we conceived the idea well before the arrival of COVID-19. And so we've watched this space with concern like everyone else, but also interest from the point of view of the concerns of our book. And what we've seen, which is interesting and indeed, I guess I would say troubling, is that some of the patterns we're seeing in terms of when and where police choose to issue on-the-spot fines of $1,000 for non-compliance with public health orders, uh, we are seeing some replication of older patterns of police exercising their discretion to impose a fine or to intervene in a punitive way in those parts of the community that are traditionally experiencing disadvantage. And what's striking about that practice in the current context is there's an inverse relationship between those areas, those people, uh, and the um, transmission of COVID-19 in those parts of Sydney and New South Wales, for example. So we've seen reports in the media that the areas where the virus is at its strongest or most impactful, the eastern suburbs and the northern beaches, are the areas where the fewest infringement notices have actually been issued. Have you been following that in the media as well? I have, uh, and, and I acknowledge the work of uh, Osman Faruqi, who's done some really good investigative journalism uh, on this issue. And I think it's really important that we recognise that there are reasons to be concerned about how the police exercise their discretion uh, during this uh, public health emergency. But I would like to think that we'll take the opportunity not just to reflect on the appropriateness of police decision-making in this particular context, but it reminds us that we need to be concerned more generally about the way in which parliaments on a regular basis enact laws that give police powers that grant them extensive discretion. And so the concerns that we're seeing uh, brought to the surface here, um, I think are important, but let's treat them as important, not just in the specific COVID-19 context, but for what they reveal to us about how presence and behaviour in public spaces is very much uh, vulnerable, if you like, to how the police choose to exercise their discretion. My introductory skills are very poor, and I failed to note in the introduction to this segment that I'm also joined by Adele Carr of Greenway Chambers, uh, who has an interest in this area. And Adele, I'd just like to ask you if uh, you wanted to ask Professor McNamara anything about those areas before we look at perhaps the areas where police have discretion and what sort of infringements they exercise. Welcome, Professor McNamara. Uh, one thing that I was interested in in your book as well with these discretionary police factors is the um, outcome, uh, whether it be um, a criminal uh, fine or a civil fine. I, 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 have you looked at, in terms of, of your book, the outcomes of these uh, police discretionary factors? 
Yeah, look, that's a really important uh, question and, and, and the point that you're getting at there, Adele, I think is central to our concerns. So this book, this project has its origins in work that Julia Quilter and I uh, are doing with other researchers in Australia and overseas about what we're labelling the, the criminalisation, that is the decision to criminalise behaviours or risks um, or to put people at risk of criminal penalty. And our view is that we need to be concerned about criminalisation as a public policy tool because it's an example of the state using its authority uh, to uh, make impositions on individual members of the community. We argue that criminalisation needs to be thought of in broad terms. So in a traditional sense, to criminalise something is to create an offence and to impose a penalty if that offence is committed. Now, that's an important part of criminalisation as a regulatory tool. But it's not the beginning and the end of criminalisation in our view. And so I think we need to be alert to the multiple ways in which states empower their agents, um, often police officers, but not exclusively, to uh, place limitations on the liberties of individuals or to impose them, uh, to expose them to punishment in some way. So to be more tangible, we're interested not just in criminal offences and penalties, we're interested in on-the-spot fines, we're interested in move-on directions, we're interested in banning notices, we're interested in all the ways in which a person's uh, liberty can be restricted using the criminal law and its agencies as the mechanism. And Professor McNamara, can I ask you to outline uh, what sort of behaviours are we actually talking about here that have been criminalised? Are we talking about harassment? Are we talking about uh, people congregating where they shouldn't? Uh, or what sort of activities have you seen being addressed as criminal in the way that you've described? So what we've begun to do in this project is to really track uh, a very large number of categories of behaviour that um, can see a person fall foul of the law in one way or another. So there's very little argument about Indeed, I would suggest there's no argument about the fact that certain behaviours uh, should be appropriately criminalised, even if we might have concerns about the effectiveness of that from the point of view of the reoccurrence of offending. So in relation to crimes of property or violence, um, there's no real issue about the appropriateness of turning to the criminal law as a mechanism. Um, what we're interested in is what we've sometimes referred to as the multiple small ways that everyday behaviours in cities uh, can be regulated and criminalised. So things like drinking, roller skating, swearing, selling things, sleeping in the city, begging, singing, all of these things are actually exposed to the prospect of regula regulation and indeed criminal punishment in some cases. And we think it's really important to expose this often ignored area of the criminal law. So criminal law researchers, indeed, to some extent, criminal law practitioners uh, are known for what they do in the space of the serious crimes, and they are obviously hugely important. But a large bulk of the work of the criminal law happens at the margins, so to speak, and they're not really margins. They're actually where a lot of the police activity goes on, a lot of the place where the fines are issued. So we're interested in those, those everyday behaviours, those small ways in which we can be uh, finding ourselves at the receiving end of the criminal law. Well, can I ask one specific question? Uh... Where would you see sniffer dogs sitting within your analysis and the use of those uh, techniques, forensic or otherwise, by the police, usually at concerts, but potentially, but possibly not only at concerts, uh, 
to try to identify potential drug offences. Yeah, look, I think that's, that... a real, that, that's very much part of the terrain in, in our view. So our, 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 what we refer to as a thick conception of criminalisation, uh, we think needs to be broad enough to include um, all those ways in which can, police are authorised by legislation to um, exert their authority, um, whether it's in the, uh, by issuing a move-on direction where they uh, form the view that a person's presence might be distressing to other members of the community. But certainly drug detection dogs uh, are a very good example of where um, that the proliferation of sniffer dogs uh, in New South Wales in particular, and some listeners won't recognise necessarily that it's actually quite an unusual phenomenon. Sniffer dogs are not widely used around the world in the way that they are in New South Wales. And so sometimes uh, the controversies that surround them, um, perhaps we don't recognise how unique the situation is, but sniffer dogs, drug detection dogs, move on powers, there are all ways in which individuals can be subjected to um, direct contact with the police, indeed the risk of uh, arrest or charge. In relation to your point, Professor McNamara, about charges, uh, have you found in your research uh, that the police are issuing on-the-spot fines so it's a single instance or, or are they um, monitoring the public spaces and then those um, fines or charges are, for want of a better word, tacked on to, to other charges that, that the person or otherwise might be um, uh, considered to or, or laws to have breached? Yeah, look, that's a great question, Adele. Um, the, the short answer is it's, it's both really hard to know um, because very little of this is in the public domain. It's also hard to generalise. So uh, uh, location-specific um, uh, uh, practices are really important in this context. We need to recognise that there's enormous diversity uh, across, for example, a city like Sydney in terms of how the police exercise their powers. But, but certainly it's the case that Often what we see in these situations is um, a police approach for something relatively benign um, or indeed uh, entirely uh, um, normal uh, public space behaviour might be the catalyst for um, an escalation. It might be, for example, people are familiar with the, the concept of the trifecta where a police approach an individual on the basis they might be using swear words in public becomes the justification for the initial approach um, and that may be the beginning and the end of the matter. It may result in a warning. It could result in an on-the-spot fine. It could result in a charge or a court attendance notice. But uh, far too often those encounters um, produce frustration uh, and they sometimes result in additional um, behaviours and charges being laid. So um, the other thing to recognise is that we have very little capacity to understand with a robust evidence base um, how frequently police issue warnings before they proceed to adopt more punitive approaches like um, hand out on the spot fines or arrest or issue court attendance notices. One of the things I've suggested in the current COVID-19 public health order context is it would have been desirable if there was a stronger legal obligation on police to issue warnings in the first instance before they handed out fines. There's some evidence that in some instances they are doing that but it's not legally required. And one of the safeguards that can be adopted in this context is to mandate the issuing of warnings as a first step uh, before more punitive options are pursued. Well, it seems that both the police and the legislature are involved in the uh, approach that you've been describing in your book. Uh, what are the motivations, or at least the stated motivations, for, say, the police and the legislature for these contemporary approaches 
and are they the same or do they differ in any ways? They are multiple, I guess, is, is the short answer. Um, safety recurs frequently in justifications for the expansion of modalities of criminalisation, which is kind of an academic way of saying all the different ways that the police and others might be empowered to intervene in situations. Um, safety, of course, needs to be unpacked because um, we all have different standpoints and perspectives on safety, um, and it might depend on the circumstances, but safety is a, a, a major driver. Um, commercial considerations are very important too. So often the drivers for police action in a particular locality um, are to do with the expectations um, of local uh, shop owners and the local business community. And so often tensions around public space behaviours are associated with a concern that the presence of some people or the conducting of certain behaviours in certain locations might uh, be inconsistent with the commercial aspirations for the area. The other thing, I guess, a bit more, um, a bit more conceptual, but it's something that we've begun to learn about from researchers working in sociology, in urban geography, is that there are more kind of uh, ephemeral or, or kind of abstract conceptions of what public space is for that we need to grapple with here. And, and so um, one of the issues that um, can come to the surface in the context of the criminal law is that for some people, public spaces are very much an opportunity to escape the strictures of their domestic or family environment uh, and as places for transgression, for excitement, for experimentation. So there's a whole different mindset that might uh, inform a person who comes to public spaces with that expectation. And you can see how they might come into conflict with the expectations of others whose primary concern is safety or commerce. Or the one that I haven't mentioned, which is really important in terms of public spaces, is uh, the expectation that public spaces are primarily places of transit for movement from one location to another. And so when you imagine all those different expectations about what public space is for, you can imagine that there can be lots of tension when the state intervenes in some way by enacting an offence or by empowering the police to move people on under certain circumstances. And just to finish up on the last point uh, that I would like to raise is, do the courts have a role to play here or is the process of the uh, criminalisation or at least restrictions on the public spaces uh, really an immediate one where the police interact with the public and it's really uh, only then that these the effect of these approaches takes hold and whatever happens in the courts at a later stage uh, really is after the event. I mean, I think we've seen certainly um, on a number of occasions where the police have issued fines and other uh, infringement notices for protesters, for unionists, for environmentalists, when those infringement notices have come to the courts, they've been either rejected or thrown out or in some way diminished. But really, at that point, the damage has already been done. Is that right? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's one of the major reasons why we need to more closely scrutinise what's happening when it comes to the criminalisation of public space behaviours, because um, to a very large extent, the courts are effectively invisible when it comes to making assessments about the appropriateness of how laws have been operationalised in this area by the police, by local council officers, by private security guards in shopping malls, for example. And that's by no means a criticism of the, of the courts, rather, not at all. Rather, it's a reflection about this particular mode of criminalisation. There is very little opportunity to engage the courts in an oversight function. 
Now, one could say that, yes, of course, when a person is given an on-the-spot fine, they always have the opportunity to contest that matter in court if they so choose. But the reality is that there are enormous disincentives to doing that. Um, there is risk. Um, you may end up with a heavier fine uh, than the one that was imposed on the spot. And there are a whole range of other resourcing um, considerations which explain why most people don't take up that option. So I think one of the things that we need to consider here is how can we be satisfied about the adequacy of police decision-making, for example, in public space contexts where we don't have much access to the traditional mechanism of judicial oversight? Well, Professor McNamara, can I say it's been a fascinating discussion and we're very grateful for the insights that you've brought and the studies that you've undertaken. Uh, we look very much forward to the publication of your book. And uh, on behalf of Adele and I, I'd like to thank you for joining us here for our Greenway podcasts. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Gotta go, gotta see things. See new places and brand new things. Gotta go places and do things. Maybe to forget Hello, it's Frank Hicks here, and I'm joined by Ian Roberts to talk about an adventure that he took in January this year along the eastern seaboard, quite literally. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Well, a pleasure, Frank. Good to see you. Or hear. Excellent. Now, tell me, how did you spend your January Christmas uh, holidays this year? Uh, a little differently than most people, I think. My brother and a friend of mine uh, and I rode push bikes on the beach from Newcastle up to the Tweed River over the course of 10 days in January. Did you lose a bet? <laughs> we, we did it because we wanted to raise some money. Partly we wanted to just get out from a bit of an adventure, but we wanted to raise some money um, for an organisation in Ballina called the Bungem Transition House, which is a place um, for Aboriginal women and children who are trying to escape violent relationships. It gives them a, um, a circuit breaker, a place to stay that's a, a secret location and uh, they're able to set up a new life with their kids without anyone knowing where they are in quite um, a good deal of safety and, um, and then move on. And we wanted to raise some money for that. Well, that's a fantastic cause and no doubt it was a great motivation as you were uh, pumping across the hot sands of the eastern seaboard. Um, now, for the keen cyclists out there, can you tell us about the bikes that you and your team rode, you know, the make, model, specs, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, they're fat bikes, which is a type of mountain bike with much fatter tyres. They look very oversized. They're about four to five inches wide. And we we all have the same brand of bike actually which is more more coincidence than anything else it's a salted sand fly uh, and it's basically just a rigid framed mountain bike carbon frame with big fat wide tires but we had loaded them up with uh, panniers and racks and bags and things strapped all over them because the whole trip was self-supported we had to carry everything camping gear the lot wow and how many how many days did you plan for this to actually uh, take well Initially, it was about six days when we were quite optimistic about how far we could ride with all this gear in a day, and then it gradually grew, and ultimately, we planned on a 10-day trip. Excellent. Sounds like a lot of construction projects, and you and I have been involved in the original <laughs> program blows out when, <laughs> when encountering the reality of the situation. So you say you were carrying all your tents and gear. That must have been pretty hard. Yeah. Look, the, the bikes are really heavy, and they're not really designed for that... Um, type of load, because, mainly because 
you, you have to put the load on the bike somewhere and it normally is quite high. So the center of gravity rises and they become a little bit more difficult to maneuver, particularly in some of the more challenging terrain. On the beaches wasn't so bad because you're just grinding through soft sand um, into a ferocious headwind most of the time. <laughs> not not too many tailwinds then for some reason. They're all blowing in off the coast, were they? Yeah, for some reason we hit a pretty well 10-day northerly as we <laughs> rode our way north. Which immediately dissipated as soon as you got to your destination. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> now, what did you do for maintenance and repairs? Were there any major issues with the bikes? Uh, surprisingly few, actually. We, we did carry spares and, um, uh, and plenty of tools. We had one broken derailleur hanger on day one, which wasn't a good start um, with Marshall Douglas's bike, um, and a couple of other fairly minor things. We are able to fix the derailleur hanger. I had a spare with me. Uh, that's a sacrificial part in any event. Um, it's the bit that joins the derailleur to the frame, so they're designed to break if you hit a stick or something, so you don't break the derailleur. But that was about it. Um, uh, as I said, most of the other minor mechanical issues we were able to deal with. Excellent. Well, I imagine you met plenty of good people along the way. Any, any really stick in your mind, stay with you? Yeah, we had really, really good support all out the, the coast. And it started on night one. The night before we were about to leave, we were staying in the um, Boat Rowers Hotel in Stockton. We wanted to get an early start, so we thought we'd stay the night there and take off first thing in the morning. And the guy who runs the pub looked at our bikes. They looked a bit weird came and spoke to us, all the guys around the bar, typical sort of Australian um, pub. They're all going, you know, you guys are crazy. Uh, we'll be picking you up tomorrow by about 10 a.m. And the bloke asked us what we were doing. He was running the pub and we told him, told him the, the cause. And he said, that's fantastic. And he immediately donated all of the accommodation costs that we just paid him. So we had that sort of reaction all up the beach. Every time we met someone, we, you know, you stick out pretty clearly with these bikes and you attract a bit of attention. And we were, um, yeah, we were getting um, really good reactions from everyone, which is really heartening, I say, all about the coast. Well, uh, look, I'm glad that you got that reaction, and I hope that uh, um, you raised plenty of money uh, in excess of fifteen thousand. I think you were telling me. Yeah, there were a couple of checks we had to put in there too, which got it up to around the seventeen thousand mark. And I should say that um, only Nancy Walk, who's a Bunjalung elder. Um, uh, in Ballina was running this and funding the whole thing herself. So, and she's an amazing lady. Um, so she was just over the moon that we we're able to help her with it. Um, and uh, so, you know, she's appreciated the, the money incredibly. And of course, people can still make donations now and there's links uh, in any of your emails, I still think, um, and as yep. well as at the Greenway Chambers website. That's right. Yeah. Just look Excellent. for the Bungeon Transition House link and you, you'll find your way there. Well, that's fantastic. Look, thanks again, Anne. A great cause and a great effort. Uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you on our podcast. Thanks for having me, Frank. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Law Talking by Greenway Chambers. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.